<laughs> Listen, use the clout where you need it. <laughs> we only have so many celebrities in <laughs> Well, it's fun to be one. Let me tell you, it's great. I bet. Oh my God. I can only imagine what your email looks like. It gives me chest pain just thinking about it. <laughs> but it is an honor to be here. So yeah. thank you for having me. You bet. All right. Shall we rock? We shall. Yeah. to all our evidence-based and med-ed enthusiasts. Welcome to the OBG Core Exchange, a podcast produced by the OBG Project. We know that learning and teaching in medicine operates largely on our apprenticeship model. We see one, do one, teach one, but it leads to highly variable experiences. The model is difficult to navigate, especially in the residency and research realm. Join us today as your hosts, Ashley Comfort and Nancy Cheshire, bring in guest researchers to discuss their experiences and highlight multiple perspectives from medical students, residents, fellows, and other emerging investigators alongside their PIs to learn what has worked best and to provide some new experiences. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jocelyn Fitzgerald. She's an assistant professor at Pittsburgh and a urogynecologist who completed her, her fellowship in female pelvic medicine and reconstruction surgery. And she is with us today to talk about ERAS, which is the Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Protocol, as well as her personal experiences being on the other side of ERAS as a patient. Dr. Fitzgerald, thank you so much for joining us today. Your research thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Your research interests include chronic pelvic and bladder pain, patient-centered outcomes in pelvic reconstruction surgery, surgical innovation in pelvic reconstruction surgery, equity in medicine, and the role of social media. So <laughs> I'll oh. take a breath and then you can tell us about yourself and specifically your research interests. <laughs> and that might all be fair game today. So let's go. <laughs> bring, bring it on. I really do research in all those things. Sometimes it means my brain has way too many tabs open like my computer does. Um, but thank you so much for having me. My name is Jocelyn Fitzgerald. As you said, I'm um, an assistant professor of female public medicine and reconstructive surgery at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I did my uh, fellowship at Georgetown and MedStar Health and my residency at Johns Hopkins. Um, and I'll reference those just because both my fellowship and my residency mentors um, are represented as authors on the paper we're going to discuss today. So that's very much how I got involved. Um, and yes, my interests uh, in research, probably the, the two big ones are chronic pelvic pain. Uh, that pathway I've sort of been on since college, really. Um, sort of very interested in the way women's pain is expressed, not only by the patient, but perceived by the provider and then subsequently treated by the provider, um, how chronic pelvic pain is so poorly understood. Um, and then to your point, I am extremely interested in the role social media plays in all of this. And it actually does have a big role in identifying the needs of women in pain because social media is kind of the tool they have to connect with each other and also to try to scream into the abyss to get our attention. 
So I care very deeply about all those things and I'm very excited to talk about them and about ERAS today, which is part of pain care in OBGYN. Yeah, I actually am particularly excited because I was even able to contact you through social media, which is very cool. And, um, you know, the other coin of, or the other side of that is that a lot of my patients, especially who have pelvic pain and who have fibroids, they seem to really be able to find a community in others that have similar conditions and oftentimes even before their own physicians address it. Um, so would you be able to talk a little bit about that and, you know, if you find that or sort of what aspect of social media are you focusing on? Yeah. Um, so to your point, the chronic pelvic pain in particular gynecologic or gynecologic related pain is so common in the United States and in the world. So one of the beauties of social media, sometimes it brings people together for the wrong reasons, but a lot of times it does bring people together for the right reasons. And these networks of women and patient advocates have formed um, around these wildly under-researched and under-treated conditions like endometriosis, interstitial cystitis, adenomyosis, IBS, the other chronic myofascial pain conditions of the female pelvis. Um, And I am really proud of the majority of the conversations that these women are having. There are some, you know, does pseudoscience abound on the internet? Yes, but a lot of them actually are extremely evidence-based. They pull together what little evidence there is, um, exchanging things like IC diets and exchanging also provider networks. Where can I find a physician who is trained in the differential diagnosis and the comprehensive treatment of chronic pelvic pain? Where do the multidisciplinary pain centers exist in the U.S.? Where can I find pelvic floor physical therapy? A lot of those resources have been created by grassroots organizations of women on the Internet faster than we've been able to put them together as academic physicians and academic medical providers. Um, So I mean, we can again get into this more, but there's this really great quote in, I'm going to botch it, in the modern iteration of the Hippocratic Oath, which basically says that we are obligated to our fellow mankind, whether they are sick or not, like the infirm as well as the general populace. So I kind of, you know, I see being a physician very much as a vocation and my duty to my patients begins more of a forest for the trees type view. And social media makes that frankly really easy. So one of the biggest things people in pain need is validation. And that's something that's free (laughs) that I can provide to women uh, via outlets like Twitter and Instagram that I'm a physician who's been rigorously trained. I mean, I do absolutely use my, the letters behind my name to say like, I'm a credible source and I believe you and everything you're saying is true. And you've been perhaps gaslit for a long time into thinking that your pain is not, does not have an organic or a molecular basic science driven source. And we know that's not true. Um, So that's kind of my long winded answer to why I think social media is so important, particularly in this patient population. Jocelyn, can you um, offer some comments about how your institution views social media use by by physicians? Because I know there's a lot of concern by institutions, uh, concerns for malpractice, 
Um, Definitely. Uh, HIPAA violations, those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, this is very timely because just yesterday I had, I am giving a Grand Rounds Young Faculty Format talk with uh, an amazing group of media specialists. I work at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which is a enormous organization with, you know, a lot of patients, a lot of resources. Um, and her and I are giving a talk together on how to harness the power of media for, for good in academic medicine and in somewhat, you know, corporate medicine settings without losing your job, like how to help patients without, <laughs> without really like taking all of these missteps. And so we did, we very carefully put this whole presentation together just yesterday. Um, and the number one thing I tell everyone before they go firing off tweets every which way is to look up your organization's institutional social media policy. Everyone has one at this point. If they don't, I'm a little bit concerned about where you work because they're probably a little behind the times. Um, but my organization definitely has one. You can get a sense for how sort of liberal it is perhaps they definitely have guidelines about patient identifiers like to no one's surprise the answer is if you're ever thinking like will this violate hipaa the answer is yes assume that it does please do not post <laughs> that name do not post pictures quotes any anecdotes that could easily identify somebody at any point in time do not post that that is like social media 101 in medicine um, but beyond that, there are like some more subtle guidelines they typically give. You always, people always in on Twitter and Instagram will disclaim in their bio, like, I do not represent my institution. My thoughts only represent me. And that's all very nice, but don't lie to yourself. Like you are representing your institution, no matter what, in some capacity, they, they pay your salary and you work for them. So in some, you always need to know, like, Perhaps Big Brother is watching. Anything you tweet can wind up as a headline across the front page of your local newspaper or in a national headline. So you always want to be very cognizant of what um, you post. I think the easiest, in addition to having, you know, the guidelines of your institution at your fingertips, I always tell people, as you are beholden inside of the hospital to your patient, your patient always comes first. Your patient also comes first on social media. So. If you are on social media for any reason other than to help your patients to increase visibility of their disease or some inequity related to the betterment of their health, then you need to ask yourself like what you're doing on social media as if you're representing yourself as a medical professional. Um, if you hold that at the center of everything you post, it's pretty hard to go wrong with some caveats, but in general. Great. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, you know, given how different social media is from a more traditional research setting, how can you, how do you go about kind of doing research on social media? Yeah. Um, you'd be amazed at how many things pop up. Um, for example, um, this is like a very, this has not yet been done. This is, I'm me and my to my fellow and my resident are having a meeting about this tomorrow. But I'm sure that, um, and watch, I'm going to say this on the podcast, someone's going to go do it and beat us to the punch. But it's fine, because it's all for the betterment of women. I don't care who does this research. It's done. Um, I don't know if you saw over the weekend, I guess it was last week. Um, 
oh my god, what's wrong with me? I just call him Ryan and Dr. Stewart, Ryan Stewart. He is a urogynecologist, and he posted a whole thread about crowdsourcing what women want in a gynecologic office experience, and it went super viral. It was all over BuzzFeed, all over the place. Um, Him and I are very good friends. We've worked on some research together before, and he's extremely busy setting up his private practice. And, of course, I messaged him, and I said, Dr. Stewart, like, who is analyzing these responses? Where are they going to go? Like, this is a data minefield. Yeah. You can do a qualitative analysis of these responses. You have the data, you have likes to tell you like exactly how much weight each of them should be given. This is crowdsourced best practice guidelines, perhaps. Like I, one of my other research uh, interests you read off is patient-centered outcomes to gynecologic surgery. Um, and we're going to get back to ERAS. Also, this is also connected, like a big part of the ERAS paper we're going to review is that like discharge planning starts in the pre-op visit. And I feel like so much of that is with the patient experience in the office. And if you have patient-centered best practice guidelines for the gynecologic office experience, I mean, you can put run that through a qualitative type software and produce a beautiful evidence-based paper about what women want Patients want, of course, women and trans women, um, and you can publish it. So, like, that's just, like, a little thing. Like, it's a beautiful crowdsource that you can get. I've also just, in general, collaborated with so many people on op-eds, themes that have emerged from conversations on social media, um, other collaborative guidelines. For example, I authored... um, this thing called the GYN Ontology Project, which is all of the hashtags that are used to connect the conversations between all the different subspecialties of OBGYN. And that document was co-signed by all the major organizations in OBGYN, SGS, ACOG, OGS, you know, all the SGO, all the rest of them. So those are just a few of the things that have come from being on Twitter. Yeah, so one of the interesting things um, as an editor that I've dealt with um, uh, is the issue of surveys um, and um, web-based or computer-based, and that will include social media um, uh, platforms as well, um, because of the huge problem with response bias that's introduced, you know, who actually is going to bother to fill out a uh, survey it's either someone who's you know very disgruntled or, or overjoyed and then you miss all the people yeah. in the middle and you don't really know which it was right so um yeah. uh so which is you know why patient satisfaction uh reports that we all get in our practices where you have seven people respond to the questionnaires you know always leaves me kind of scratching my head mm. but it, nonetheless there are um uh, for those of you interested in doing this kind of research, um, publication guidelines available for computer-based um, um, surveys. If you go to equatornetwork.com, it's equator-network.org, I think, um, and look for the CHERI, C-H-E-R-R-I-E-S, publication guideline. It'll give you all the things you need to have in your paper um, to help 
address the issue that you really can never figure out what your response rate is on a web-based um, uh, questionnaire. And this would apply also to social media questionnaires if you use them uh, for research purposes. It's so, so useful. Thank you. Sure. Love having Dr. Cheshire here. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> Seriously taking notes. <laughs> I am writing notes down too, so that's good. Little life hack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, that is a great segue into the um, white paper on the ERAS protocol. Um, before we dive into the specifics of the paper, and you mentioned it, um, a little bit, but how and why did you get involved? Like, was it about the particular topic or what drew you to that, um, to that specific subject? Yeah. Um, like so many things in life, I was in the right place at the right time with the right mentors and sponsors. So a lot of the, um, authors on this paper are still at Johns Hopkins, where I did my residency. Rebecca Stone is the primary author of the paper. Um, I trained with Amanda Fader and Stacey Scheib there, who are also on the paper. And Hopkins was a very early adopter of ERAS, um, for those of you who don't know what ERAS is. And it stands for Enhanced Recovery After Surgery. Um, and the origins of it were mostly, to my understanding, outside of gynecologic surgery. They kind of originated in the colorectal general surgery literature and were really being done around open surgery, um, of which we are doing less and less in gynecologic surgery. So um, we were sort of extrapolating back, let's see, when I was a resident, I mean, we probably adopted it in like 2014. So that's eight years ago at this point. Um, and we're extrapolating those guidelines to our gynecologic surgery patients as Hopkins was trying to standardize their um, perioperative guidelines and protocols. And so I was exposed to it there. And then, you know, more and more papers were coming out about the effectiveness of it or what components were needed uh, in our patient populations across the gynecologic specialties. Um, and then when I was a fellow, I got to um, Georgetown MedStar, and they did have an ERAS protocol, but we were noticing that a lot of the components did not apply to our patients, and there were little things that just didn't seem to be making sense, like especially I'm a urogynecologist, a lot of my patients um, are over 50 years old, so they were like noticing they'd get really sleepy with certain components of it, etc. And so we kind of went through all of it with um, the anesthesia group and all the stakeholders in building the ERAS protocol and decided consensus-wise what we all thought was kind of the best move. So I had this whole like specific to gynecology protocol all written out that I built. And Amy Park is also, she's the head of Eurogyn now at the Cleveland Clinic, but she was my attending in fellowship who was on this paper as well. Um, she helped me put all that together. And then when we were at AGL, the, in the subsequent months, I went to Dr. Stone's talk on ERAS and minimally invasive surgery. And Dr. Scheib was there and I was telling them like, oh, I already have this whole thing sort of written out because they were mentioning that we needed to put together like consensus, like best practice guidelines for gynecologic surgery, especially for minimally invasive surgery, because some of the stuff for, for open incisions is way overkill um, for the, for the 
the modes by which we do hysterectomy. So anyway, we were sort of just all in the room in the right place at the right time. And next thing I knew, Dr. Stone was putting together a group of people who were interested and we built the paper around that. And there are um, gynecologic oncologists that were in the, in the room and our authors. Uh, urogynecology and female pelvic reconstructive surgery is there. MIGS is represented as well as um, physicians from the US and Canada. And we all kind of got in a room at Hopkins one weekend when I was a fellow and sat there for a very long time and pulled together all of the things that we bring from our expertise and from what the data had to offer and wrote this, this paper. Great. And I think that one thing that we're hearing over and over again is about these mentorship networks and the connections between people that are doing research that you find interesting and being able to get connected with them, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's a friend of a friend or just reaching out and emailing either the first author or, you know, somehow being able to connect with them via social media, some way to kind of get hooked up with people who are doing things that you also find interesting. Um, we're going to take a quick break and hear a little bit about OBG First, which is a part of the OBG project. So stay tuned and we will be back shortly. As physicians, we all know it's important to stay on top of the latest research and guidelines. That's why we created OBG First's guideline notifications. Mobile-friendly daily notifications of guideline changes and research summaries. Make staying informed of new announcements and releases easier, all for the cost of a cup of coffee. We've got a special offer just for our listeners for two months free off their OBG First subscription. Go to obgproject.com backslash getfirst and use promo code OBGSpotify at checkout. That's obgproject.com backslash getfirst, promo code OBGSpotify. Okay, so we're back. And for our listeners who may not yet be convinced by the magic of ERAS, can you give us a brief summary of the key components of ERAS? <laughs> yes, I can do my best. Um, this is a very long paper, so I won't bore everyone with, oh my God, it's so many pages long. I forget how many in total. It's <laughs> 25 pages long. So I am going to summarize it in much less time than that. Um, but or if you want to just highlight, what do you think the most important aspects of it are? That which might be a, a more succinct summary. <laughs> yes, the the most succinct version is that the ERAS in general is designed to get patients in and out of surgery in the healthiest and hopefully most pain free way possible. It is meant to keep multiple organ systems functioning well and rebounding quickly after your operation. And like I said earlier, it really does start in the office, in the pre-operative period. So the ERAS guidelines really are organized by pre-op stays, stage, perioperative stage, intraoperative interventions, post-operative interventions, including some guidelines for same-day surgery, if that safely applies to your patient. Because um, a lot of people think that this ERAS protocol was designed just to get people out of the hospital faster. And that is not true. 
it is designed to get people out of the hospital and onto recovery as quickly and safely as possible, which oftentimes is when they leave, when they leave the hospital and they, they go home there, your home environment oftentimes is a better place for you to heal in than overnight in a hospital where you're being stuck with lab draws and woken up for vitals every four hours and hooked up to monitors and all these things like better if you're safe to just sort of go home and start moving about in the spaces that you will ultimately be recovering in. So um, I don't think I could pick a most important part. That's the beauty of this sort of model is that this is a care bundle. It's kind of like in the operating room when you're you're like, oh, we do all these things to prevent infection. Like, which of them is the most important? You could study all the different pieces all day long, but you'll never figure it out. You just know that they all work when you put them together. And that's sort of in the struggle in studying a lot of the ERAS protocols is people are like, what do we have to include? What can we take out? What? And so all of them at every hospital is a little bit different based on your patient population, which I overall think is fine. This is this this paper. It, it, throws out like everything and whatever like sticks to the wall and helps your patients the most is probably what you should use. Um, but it is a bundle and it requires on preparing patients when you're talking about surgery with them from day one. And it continues when they're preparing for surgery at home the day before they go in to get checked into the pre-op area. It begins in the, it continues in the pre-op area. It continues intraoperatively and it continues when they wake up and move towards discharge. All of them are equally important. Fair enough. And um, as I pulled up your paper, I happened to come across the line that people typically have a difficult time remembering more than three to five main points when presented new information. So we'll leave our readers at a cliffhanger and recommend you go and <laughs> scan the recommendations. <laughs> yeah. There are some very nice charts in the paper. There are some very nice charts in the paper. One of the things that I think this kind of a compilation also allows is for people to understand or identify uh, gaps in the literature. Mm -hmm. uh, so there were some things in here where you, you know, just said there's no data to support this, but, um, and those are, those are nice little places for people to do focused research um, as well. Absolutely. Could not agree more. And there's things, even since this is paper has been written, that, like, have been more disproven than not. One of my favorite ones, and I'll say this, this makes me sad, is that one of the things that is, it's not necessarily recommended, but it's suggested it might help, is that to evaluate ureteral patency, we often give patients preoperative pyridium to see their jets, which is so great for seeing jets, and it's very low cost, and it's a fabulous thing, but much, much more cost effective and oftentimes faster than using methylene blue or fluorescein. But it was suggested in a small study that it might help patients pass their formal retrograde voiding trial because of the its effect on sort of bladder analgesia. Turns out that's not really true. But I was hopeful that it would be true when we wrote the paper. But we did write it very ambiguously. We were like, this might help. <laughs> Turns out it probably doesn't help. <laughs> um, fair enough. Now, <clears throat> you recently were a patient yourself, and you were put on the ERAS protocol. Is that correct? Yes, I was. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience being a patient who has been put through the sort of guidelines that you yourself helped put together? Yeah. And 
I'm going to disclaim, and I mean, again, I'm 35 years old. I'm in good health. So my experience compared to like a 70-year-old woman, you know, who just had pelvic reconstructive surgery is going to be different. Um, but I have never been a bigger believer. Um, I'm not paid to say that. <laughs> um, because I feel like my anesthesia, it was like almost too good. <laughs> I like came home. I was like, I'm going to rake my leaves. And my mom was like, um, I need you to, to not do that. Like, are, you, are you manic <laughs> from your anesthesia? I was like texting my fellows. I, I had to have a laparoscopic um, left salpingo-oophorectomy for a benign anexal mass, thank goodness. Um, and I had the, the, the things that people I think hear about ERS the most is I was able to drink, I'm holding it up, Gatorade, um, oh, but, but not red. You cannot have red, actually, as it turns out. I'm holding up a red Gatorade. I know no one, none of the listeners can see that. But you're not allowed to drink red Gatorade up to two hours beforehand because if you throw it up, it can look like blood and be very confusing. So they were very specific with me on the phone when the pre-op nurse called me. She's like, you can drink Gatorade up to two hours before your procedure, but it cannot be red. So I drank yellow Gatorade <laughs> and blue Gatorade. Um, so that's a nice thing because you don't have to be like starving and hypoglycemic. Um, and then in the pre-op area, I was given Tylenol, Gabapentin. Um, I think that I got Celebrex, some NSAID, to sort of preload me with the multimodal pain um, treatment. I would have to go back and look at my record to see exactly intraoperatively what they did for my, the goals are sort of euvolemia and um, like the way they sort of not like limit narcotics, things that are going to not have you be really groggy when you wake up. And I will say that I woke up in the post-op area, like wide awake. <laughs> I was like, I'm awake. I'm alive. Like what incisions do I have? do I need to pee? Is my bladder full? Can I please go to secondary? And they were like, hold the phone lady. Like you have got to sit back down. I was like, no, no, I'm good. I'm ready to go home. I'm like texting my fellows. They were like tracking me through like the perioperative tracker. They're like, how are you texting us? You're supposed to still be like basically in the OR, like the tracker hasn't even updated. I was like, I don't know. I'm wide awake. I'm going home. I'm walking out of this hospital. <laughs> and so they were like, this is garbage. Like anytime our patients are too sleepy to wake up, we're going to like send you to talk to them and like ask why not everyone bounced out like you did. So I will say I like left, you know, I wasn't groggy. Maybe I just got lucky. Um, and it was probably 24 hours later that I was like, oh, I guess I am a little sore. I must have had surgery. So I'm a believer for what that's worth. <laughs> well, we're very happy for you that this turned Thank out you. Uh, benign and uh, easily overcome uh, process. Yes. Um, so Thank that's, you. that's pretty cool. Did, did, um, were you aware of the use of checklists uh, for your care? Um, they didn't have like formally pull them out and show them to me, but mm -hmm. I of course know what they are since I've used them uh -huh. um and i know what the order sets look like so you know i did know that my caprini score had been calculated for example to determine if i needed preoperative prophylactic heparin which i did not but um you know there are many checklists that we use to make those determinations at our institution who was also the university of pittsburgh was a, also a, like hopkins a very early adopter of eras um so those protocols have been there for a while um so I knew they were using checklists, but they didn't formally present them to me. Mm -hmm. So I, I've got a, a question about the paper. 
there are, let's see, how many, 10 or 12 authors on it. Mm -hmm. uh, I know some of these uh, people either personally or by other, uh, you know, professional or organizations or whatever, and you are not the most senior person on this paper. I'm um, not. I'm <laughs> full disclosure to your listeners. Like I am merely a reporter. <laughs> yeah. Well, not, not true. You're the, you're the fourth author out of all of these. How, how did, what, one of the real struggles for uh, emerging authors and, and particularly uh, residents and fellows when they're working with really senior folks is determining the order of authorship. Um, and in my hat uh, as um, vice chair for the Committee on Publication Ethics, um, uh, one of the major um, areas that we get complaints about um, and concerns about um, uh, to discuss and, and ponder there are authorship issues. Um, yeah. How did you determine the order of authorship? Just, huh. just, just for a some guidance for our younger, younger investigators. I don't know if the answer I'm going to give you is necessarily the right one, no, um, but I don't know if you course. picked up on the fact that, with the exception of Dr. Stone, who is the person that collated everybody's sections and contributions, the authors are in um, alphabetical order <laughs> because everyone had done literally like the same amount of work we were all there and there was like no way to parse that out um so we all just collectively agreed to be put in alphabetical order because it seemed like the fairest thing to do and let dr stone be first first author i guess she could have been the senior author i can't really remember why that decision was made but everyone was in agreement that equal work had been done so so this is a really important thing to to underscore for people is it sounds like you all planned this in advance. We you did. Had open conversation about it. You probably looked at a variety of different ways you could have made that decision and you collectively made made the decision. Uh, and that is just so important. Um, so that, important. That you do that sort of thing in advance and it doesn't come down to the end where people are muscling around as to you know, who's going to be where on the paper. So, so kudos to you and alphabetic order is a perfectly <laughs> legitimate way of doing it. Um, yep. That's what we did. So yeah. everyone was wonderful to work with. It was a really collegial, really awesome environment to be with all those extremely smart people um, who have very different perspectives. You know, the GMN oncologists, they do do a lot of open surgery and then we have vaginal surgeons and people who take out huge uteruses through tiny holes everyone you know was sort of represented so it was very nice and was this part of the aagl's writing group uh yes okay. i'm not saying that wrong but yes it was meant to be written for jmig um as a white paper best practice guideline via the agl umbrella yeah well done um well i think that we'll have to wrap up shortly but um, could we maybe get some of your last thoughts? So maybe one piece of advice or one thing that's gotten you to where you are? Yeah. Um, well, like I think many people before me, it's absolutely accurate when you say that you are a product of the people who not only believed in you and gave you resources and advice, but the people who put you in rooms um, where your name, you know, 
otherwise would not have been mentioned. And they cannot underscore the importance of sponsorship. Many of my sponsors are co-authors in this paper. They gave me an opportunity that who knows if I was even ready for it, but they believed in me and gave me that opportunity. Um, but I want to build off of something Dr. Cheshire said a few minutes ago, which um, is basically, and, and you as well, Dr. Comfort, about these these networks and reaching out to people and how you can use social media and you can go beyond your institution. There is no end to the work that is available to be done in academic medicine and the number of questions that remain unanswered. We all have more than we could ever achieve in our very long careers. And if you are somebody who can make a plan, can follow through on that plan and can complete something, of course, with the, the appropriate resources, right? Like you need a good mentor to do that too. Um, don't hesitate to send a message to the authors of papers like this or people at other institutions asking if there's some way you can make a contribution. They might not have something for you, but a lot of times they might, especially if they are on social media. I've made some of my most meaningful collaborations that way. I hate to be like such a, I'm not a Gen Zer, but like to steal their phrase, like sliding into someone's DMs. Like you can definitely <laughs> direct message. I don't know what the hell that means. <laughs> <laughs> it's academic DM sliding. It's totally fine. <laughs> it's fine if you're doing it in the name of academia. You can message people on Twitter and Instagram and, you know, of course, remain always professional, very formal, but if you don't have their email address or their phone number, don't know how else to contact them. They've put so, themselves out there on the internet for you. So thank you, Dr. Comfort, for sliding into my academic DMs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my oh my gosh, this is so funny. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Well, thank, thanks for what you're doing. And uh, you've taught me a lot just in our short conversation today. And again, I'm, I'm glad you're recovering well and uh, look forward to seeing more of your research. Perfect. Go, I go back to work Monday, so right. <laughs> hopefully then. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much. And we really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this OBG Project podcast. We at the OBG Project know you're passionate about staying up to date on the latest guidelines, research, and clinical updates. That's why we have the OBG Insider, a free weekly e-newsletter written for physicians and by physicians. Get mobile-friendly summaries, articles that will affect your practice, and alerts for new OBG education resources, all for free. Our insider articles are all open access and never behind a paywall. To start your free subscription, go to the OBG Insider at www.obgproject.com forward slash insider to sign up today.